Hello, welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne, and I'm very excited to share with you my interview with Hollis Silverman, who is a veteran of Jose Andres' Think Food Group, and now an operator of three of her own restaurants in Washington, D.C. But first, I want to talk about fashion, something about which I am not an expert at all, but even I have noticed some things that have changed as people, at least here in New York City, are going out with more frequency. In the late teens, 2017, 18, and 19, New Yorkers were, quite frankly, dressing like crap. Everything was super casual, and a lot of people looked like they were wearing whatever they happened to pick off their bedroom floors that morning. It was sad. Fast forward to now, when really, for the first time since 2019, fall party season is in full swing. My calendar is full of invitations to cocktail parties, restaurant openings, and other events, like it hasn't been since the pandemic started. And I'm noticing that people are actually dressing with intention. Their clothes fit, they match, and beyond that, they are full of exuberance and style. People watching is once again one of the most popular sports in the city, and I love to see it. There's also a new twist this time around that has little or nothing to do with the pandemic, but is all about a, a cultural shift that means that men can wear dresses now if they want to. I mean, obviously, they could always wear dresses if they wanted to, but now they really are, and they're doing it with style. Last year, I would occasionally see a guy in a dress, and inevitably, he was wearing the dress badly. It didn't fit right, or he'd chosen sleeves that weren't suited for his arms, or he'd selected a dress that would be great if he'd had a woman's curves, but he didn't. Now, some of these guys have really figured out how to rock the hell out of the dresses that they're choosing, and it's really great and cool and fun. I personally don't think I want to wear a dress. It's not it's not on my agenda, but I would really like to figure out figure out how successfully to wear a cape. So if you have any thoughts about that, let me let me know. It's a work in progress. But enough about me and fashion. Although, if you do have comments or thoughts or pictures of your own fashion observations that you'd like to share, you can email them to me at brett.thorn at informa.com or just show me on social media where I'm Food Writer Diary. You can Google me. I'd show right up. But now it's time to hear from my esteemed guest, Hollis Silverman of Eastern Point Collective. Uh... So, Hollis Silverman. Uh, yeah, the restaurant company is called Eastern Point Collective, That's but we it. have a we have a three concepts currently in Capitol Hill. One is called the Duck and the Peach, which is a new American upscale restaurant for dinner. We have a casual Italianish osteria called La Colina, which means the hill in Italian. Since we are on the hill, and then we have a gin bar called the Wells. So how come like you, so you were with think food group for a long time and then you left and now you're doing your own thing, right? I was, I was fortunate enough to, when I moved to Washington, DC, I interviewed with Jose and really they were just changing from their old restaurant group Proximo to think food group. So I think I was actually the first person to have the think food group email and, uh, 
joined Jose, who was wonderful, still a dear friend. And we were able to grow the team from five restaurants to 16 before I left uh, at the end of 13. But then he was persistent. And I went back for about two and a half years before I did my own thing to work on uh, Mercado Little Spain. Oh, the one in New York or, or in yeah. general? Mercado? Yeah. yeah, I led the development team on it and then turned it over to their operational team. I had dinner there recently when some friends were in town. It was great. We ate. Oh, good. Yeah, we ate outside in a very casual space and mm-hmm. you know, had, you know, everything just tastes really good and is reasonably priced. And, you know, there's no nonsense about it. And that's, especially in Hudson Yards, it's nice to have something that's reasonably priced and refreshing and good. It was great. The Spanish diner was one of the 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 larger concepts right when you come in I think where all the doors come up and it was really it was fun because when Jose was he'd been talking about a Spanish market ever since I got to know him so it was awesome to be able to work with Julie Capella and then Ferran and Albert and Jose and it was a it was a it was so many minds so many beautiful things and and take all of the beautiful places that I've been traveled with him to Spain and be able to bring it to New York it was great. Yeah, it's it's uh, a welcome addition to the city. Are and you in the city? I am. I, I live in Brooklyn. I am currently in our offices in Murray Hill in Midtown. Oh, fun. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really love our offices, but, you know, I, I only have to come in around once a week these days anyway. So that's there you go. Not too bad. Brooklyn's yeah. awesome. I love Brooklyn. Yeah, well, that's that's where I live and now where I spend most of my time. And, you know, since I came out of lockdown a couple of years ago, I've been able to explore my neighborhood, which I never could do before because my job was to commute to Midtown and then go out of the hip trendy places. And so now I'm a regular in two different bars in my neighborhood and I sort of I've sunk into the community and it's really been nice. There was um, a great, yeah, I love yeah, lots of good things. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, obviously, there are many neighborhoods in Brooklyn, uh, and I live in one of them. But but what we're talking about mostly today is is your Eastern Point Collective. Yes. And what, why is it called that? And what what is your overall vision of the, of the group? Well, thank you for asking. <laughs> the overall vision of the group is to change hospitality through integrity and grace. I started Eastern Point Collective inspired by restaurant groups to have a group of restaurants to build teams beautiful places to eat wonderful food drink wonderful things have about hopefully five to eight restaurants in the dc area over the next five to ten years that's my vision and you have a uh 22 service charge at all of your restaurants right i do so, so is your approach the sort of the traditional European model where this is the menu, these are the prices, and then automatically onto the bill, we're adding the service charge? Yes. So that's different from, say, what Danny Meyer here in New York did, which was raise all the prices and say you don't have to do anything. Correct. Uh, why did you decide to go with this European-ish approach? Well, I did a lot of research beforehand and reaching out to Union Square Hospitality was a piece of that. And right before the pandemic, I actually hand wrote Danny Meyer a letter because I knew he would respond to a handwritten letter. 
and uh, someone from his team reached out, which was wonderful. And I had some questions about how hospitality included worked and they were really wonderful. And I still have my uh, legal pad of notes. And I looked at how much people would typically tip on average, looked at a bunch of different restaurants were doing that model. And I picked the 22% because it was a good in between what most people did leave as gratuity. And I wanted to do it as an additional service charge because I believe when people look at your prices and your menus online, they don't make that difference, right? They don't make the difference of service and food. They're just looking at what the thing costs. So if it's a plate of chicken and you have the hospitality included, it's going to be 22 or 20% more. And even subconsciously after a while, they're not going to go to your place as often as they would someone else. So yeah. those are one of the things that I wanted to do. So I, I was, it's not going to be included. It's a additional service charge. Yeah, that's some of the feedback that I got when I talked to different Union Square Hospitality Group people. For example, uh, at the Modern, the fine dining restaurant where they first implemented it, they noticed that if you charge somebody $80 for a bottle of wine with a tip implied, they were more likely to buy that than they were to buy a $100 bottle of wine, even mm -hmm. though they end up paying the same because we're not good at math and our brain, like there's a reason that menu items are priced $15.95 and not $16 because our brains respond differently to $15.95 and the $16. So makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So you have to think about how the brain thinks and doesn't think. Right. <laughs> exactly. And your uh, automatic, your automatic go-to. So it's really looking at trends and how people think and, and where they look for menus and prices. And you are a pandemic era group right you started <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean I thought I had seen it all uh we I had uh I never wanted to open restaurants but the space was available very close in my neighborhood and I knew that if I was going to do it I had to do it because I wanted to I know I wouldn't be happy with anything and I should uh, or I would be critical so it was important to me to have something in my neighborhood because I felt that I knew what the neighborhood really needed and also that I could have a great impact hopefully on the restaurant industry as a whole. And we started construction December of 2020. March, everyone thought it was just going to be six or eight weeks. So we just kept going and kept going. And it was this slow drip of building. And then, you know, we had pieces in China that were delayed and then Ohio shut down and all of our woodwork was there. So it was kind of like this extended a construction piece that took forever. And so we finally opened um, and then we just got to a point where we couldn't stop. <laughs> so we were already in it. So we're like, all right, let's just do this. And yeah, the we opened, are coming in no matter what. It's coming in. And yeah. it was interesting because staff was really hard to find before the pandemic started, like finding a chef. It was, I was looking all over the place. And so we, I had a couple of teams in place and then we opened the Duck and the Peach in December of 2020 with takeout only. I had an idea that I wanted to make a kitchen so that we could sustain carryout during busy times, which usually restaurants can't do that because their line isn't built enough, big mm -hmm. enough. So, but I knew that that type of revenue was really great margins, which would help us as a business. So I was like, great, we'll open and then we'll introduce this carryout model. We'll have some subscriptions for some chicken. <laughs> So instead we opened with carryout, which was so nerve wracking because 
in a normal restaurant opening, you plate the food, the drink, you bring it to the table and you get to see the guest's face and you get to see the plate. So you know, oh, why didn't they eat that? Or what was the reaction? Here, you put it in a container and you send it out the door and then that is it. I mean, it was the it was very different R&D compared to what I was used to. So we would, I found the most beautiful packaging I could for our roast chicken, very expensive, but I was like, this is, this is how people are going to get to know us. So it's very, I am so, it's funny, still we're doing it and people, I'm very particular about these things and the instructions and how it holds. And we would cook a dish, we would put it on a table and we would let it sit for 30 minutes and then we would taste it. It was, it was, um, That's yeah. Smart. So we were, we were a pandemic, we're a pandemic, uh, I feel like we're just getting to what regular is. This is the longest opening uh, I've ever done. I thought I'd seen it all between the bazaar and Mercado and a couple other places, but this is really a. So, so you started construction in 2019. 20, January, 2020. Oh, January, 2020. Okay. So you thought, okay, cool. And then of course the world ended and we had to rethink everything. Yes. Uh, and so it took you pretty much a year, 11 months to open the first location. Yes. So that's, which honestly, like it always takes a long time to open a restaurant. It doesn't matter. I've never heard of a restaurant opening on time. Mm-hmm. It's always something, some kind of hold up. So, so the duck and the peach was your first one. Yes. And then La Colina and then the Wells. So was, was your uh, service charge, was that part of the original concept of, yes. of restaurants? Mm-hmm. And as you said, you, you, well, I don't remember the, the phraseology used, but you, you wanted to create a culture in your restaurants, in your mm-hmm. group that included, you know, paying people properly and like that. Yes, I have been, I've worked in a tipped house. I've been a server and a bartender and really looking at where tipping started and how it came about and also looking at all of the challenges in culture and in environments that the restaurant industry has. I don't think tipping adds to anything great for it. Uh, So I wanted to pay people a higher hourly wage and take that piece out of it because when you your livelihood is dependent on whether or not this guest is going to decide to tip you. You'll, you'll, you'll deal with a lot of things that you shouldn't have to deal with. And it's really unfortunate. So I was pretty adamant if I was going to do a restaurant, I wanted to have an impact and figure out a better way to change the model and change how people are paid and really help create more stability. And I think also the pandemic really shined a light on a lot of that and how unstable a tip system is. Right. And, and I, I waited tables one summer mm-hmm. at a big boy restaurant in Denver, my hometown. So, you know, it was a diner. Um, and I'm a man, which makes a really different uh, calculation of what you're expected to put up with and what you put up with. But nonetheless, you know, I, I smiled at the anti-Semitic people. I remember sitting at a table or not sitting, waiting a table where the man was clearly paying and the woman was flirting with me. And I'm like, (laughs) this is not, I'm going to lose. What, like, how do I act? And I I actually, later on, years later, when I had this job, I was at a restaurant in New York uh, eating with their publicist. And I I asked the the waitress, how how do you deal with that? And she said, well, you kind of turn it into a three-way, which I thought was an interesting (laughs) idea. But like, 
you're just trying to bring these people food and drinks. Like you, you, if, if you want to do something else, that's a different conversation, but that, that shouldn't be part of your obligation. No, and it really shouldn't. No. And I'm sure that, that as a woman server, there's just a million times more of that than anything I ever had to put up with. Uh, there is so many ways. It's very, um, yes, there's so, a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. I'm not asking you to get all, you know, into the details, not necessary, but because uh, everybody knows. But so do you think that your uh, service included thing has helped to mitigate a lot of that? I do. I think it's a piece of it. There are other pieces that are really important to creating a culture where people feel seen, valued, and heard mm-hmm. and not putting up with some of the other norms. We have a handbook of all the things to make sure people are following the rules and the standards, two really big standards that we have, which are unfortunately norms. We have a zero tolerance for sexual harassment and touching. What I've noticed is that touching can be a trigger, not just for the person being touched, but for someone else watching it. So really it's creating a safe space. And then we have a dry bar. So we have a zero tolerance for drugs and alcohol. We work with alcohol, we sell alcohol, but it's very important that when you're tasting, you're also spitting. Right. And I have not seen any place where a shift drink, oh, tasting and not spitting or a drink after work works well. It really leads to a lot of things that are uncomfortable and unsafe. So you have the service charge, but then you have to have a lot of other things with that to create a culture where people feel safe and seen and value and heard. That's cool. And is it hard to get people to adhere to those standards or do you, when they walk in, do you say this is the way it is? This is the way it is. We, uh, this is the way it is and tweaking some of our orientation and really educating people on the why behind things also is important because a lot of people don't understand it. Some people don't agree with it and that's totally fine. You know, we're not for everyone. Yeah. But uh, for me and, and every place that I've worked and what I've seen, it never ends up well. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to be proven wrong, but I haven't seen it. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can understand why people would, would feel like, what do you mean? I can't hug a colleague. And the answer is because you can't. And that's, If there's consent and they have a relationship, that is it. But the amount of people, I mean, I've, I've seen a couple, you know, conversations with people and not realizing how much trauma people are holding or if they are survivors of something. And the, the piece that's really was eye opening to me, uh, was how normal it is. And when people have spoken up in other places, they were not listened to and, the trigger part of seeing it happen to someone else could be so detrimental and really put someone into a bad place. So it's, um, we have, we have a lot of work to do in this industry, but it can be done. We sure do. And I, I'm still, it it, it was surprising starting, start with the whole, the whole, this period of the Me Too movement, because I know it's older than a few years old, but the whole beginning with the active accusations against Harvey Weinstein and people like clutching their pearls and saying, oh my God, what a shocker. And I felt like, well, but you hadn't heard of the casting couch? I mean, 
I know it's kind of a joke, but you also know it definitely wasn't a joke. And then when all the accusations came out uh, against all of the restaurant operators, I, it, it's interesting that because, as you said, this was the norm. And so then suddenly to say this isn't the norm gives people whiplash. And, and it's, I would argue, whiplash that they deserve. But nonetheless, it's, it, it's a shock to the culture that, that really takes getting used to. Mm-hmm. But it's all over. I wouldn't say it's just the restaurant industry oh, right. and a lot of other industries, you know, too. But it is it's it's sad how it became and has become such a norm. People are waking up to it, but giving people also the power and the words to say, we don't do that here. We don't do that here. It's very simple. There's people are afraid to speak up. So also trying to teach people that it's OK and it's professional. It's not personal is a really big thing also. Right. And and you're not being a jerk or a snitch or whatever, a prude to use a dated word when you say you may not do that. Mm-hmm. I, you got to tell people. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry if it makes other people feel uncomfortable. Nonetheless, you know, if you're the one doing the inappropriate behavior, you started it and you should feel uncomfortable. So uh, you're also, I think, a a hundred percent women led group. Is that right? Uh, we have, uh, almost, we have, a we have, we have, we have a, we have a good amount, a good amount of all, all the people. But not, not, yeah, you, you, you allow other people who are yes. women. We have a, our executive chef as a female, our pastry chef, our director of operations, uh, our general manager is male. Uh, it's really just the people it's finding the right people for the right roles. And and did, did that happen organically or was it sort of a, an intentional structuring of, of the work? I, uh, somewhat organically, I was looking for the best chef I could, the best palate, the best expression of flavor. And they were both women, so. There you go. There you I'm go. Not- I mean, I'm, part, I'm partly asking because here I have, I have a woman on the podcast, glad to do it, do it all the time, but it is harder for me to find non-white men to be guests yes. on the podcast, not because they don't exist, but because when you ask, hey, wants, who wants to be on my podcast, who wants this prestigious job, it's the white men who raise their hand. And I've been talking to, to other, other chefs and other people in the industry who talk about the confidence level that that a lot of people who aren't used to being recognized don't think that they're worthy. Is, is, is that something that you've seen? And do you have any suggestions for how to overcome that? Um, oh, it's a big loaded question. All right. I mean, women should speak up more. I think that we're really great listeners. Some women speak up better than others. We're very aware and everybody's different, but I think that it's important to speak up. I think that it's also important for people to, (laughs) gosh, um, women don't like to, oh gosh, I'm going to get myself in trouble with some of these things. Um, I have to be very careful. Everyone um, can understand that we're not speaking about everybody as a monolithic group. We're talking 
about trends and inclinations. Not that all men are big, loud jerks or all women are, are simpering little meek people. Obviously, that's not remotely the case. But, but I think there are self-esteem issues with that that are more prevalent in some groups than in others. Is that? Um, there are, but then I think, I mean, it's also how like, you know, women have been treated, you know? Right, yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really, it really hasn't been great. It hasn't been equal. Uh, we're treated very differently, um, you know, and the expectation, uh, you know, that's like this bad cultural norm that we're fighting against. And there's a lot of things that out there that aren't very equal or kind to women. So, um, you know, I think that it's really important to seek out people that might not be the first to speak up, right? Usually the people that are not the first to speak up, they've maybe been listening a bit more. They have a little bit more knowledge to spread around sometimes. They don't need to feel fill the space with their voice or explain everything? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I, you're not the first person I've asked these questions to, certainly for like guests on my podcast. And they're like, yeah, you got to work and find those people who, you know, have different perspectives and different voices and everyone benefits from that. And it's more work. And it's been more work. I've been kind of in journalism since I was in college in the 1980s. And in college, we would do these like video shoots, like, you know, man on the street, as we called it at the time. And we were good at finding men and women, but I, I went to a prestigious Northeastern University and they're like, oh, we must find an African-American. And we were on board with, with finding one and they were called African-American at the time, not black, now they're black or African-American up to them, of course. But, you know, we had to like find you know, one of the couple of dozen black people on campus to to interview them. And it's always more work to have a, I think, a more diverse group at at, at least at this point in our history. Um, but I think it's worth it. Uh, I think it's important to seek out people that might not have had a voice. I think it's fairly simple to find them. You just have to do a little looking. There's a lot of people out there and I think that it's important to have a good mix of people at the table because if everybody is the same, then you're just going to keep with the same, and we need a lot of change. And you, you, yeah, there's. It's not just you know we have to right past wrongs. We, uh, we will in fact make a better business if we are getting input from from different people. It seems, mm -hmm. and a lot more women for darn sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, so talk me a little bit through your three concepts and how they're similar, how they're different, how they all kind of fit into the notion of the Eastern Point Collective. Sure. Well, we are on one block. So the design of the place was to be two separate restaurants and a bar. We're in Capitol Hill, right near Eastern Market, and 60-seat restaurants are kind of the sweet spot for neighborhood places. So I wanted to create a more dining destination for the Duck and the Peach, which is our new American restaurant, and then have an Italian neighborhood place where things are much more, a little faster, a little more casual, families, friends, everybody welcome, and also have some event spaces. So I designed all of the restaurants to work together, but be separate. So I actually designed them all to have a shared back of house space to create some operational efficiencies 
um, but from the guest perspective, keeping the brands and the stories very different. That's cool. So you have like one giant kitchen for mm-hmm. for the two restaurants in the bar. Yep, that's neat. Are are there different lines for the different? It's all one line. We have one main line, which is in the open kitchen at the Duck and the Peach. And we have a rotisserie there. And then in the back line, which is our prep line and also our pasta line, that's where a lot of the fresh handmade pastas come out of for La Colina. And then in La Colina, we have an antipasti mozzarella bar when you first walk in. So there's probably 35, 40% of the menu comes off of that line. But all, all prepped in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. In central kitchen. That's cool. Yes. Yep. One bathroom, one big walk-in, one ice machine, one storage. So what if uh, it's kind of like a hotel. So in a hotel, you have a lot of efficiencies. So they have the different outlets. You have your in-room dining, your three meal, then you might have your destination fancy place. Right. But it's all coming out of one kitchen. So you're creating these different experiences for different people at different points in their week. And all the same culinary staff working together as one team. Mm-hmm. How about servers? Do they do they switch and swap and move around to different, different? We try not to. We, with the pandemic and with some staffing, we've been doing a little shuffling around, but we're really trying to create experiences within each concept. So we're trying to keep them separate. Right. And then I'm sure different servers have personalities that are that are more suitable to, to one yeah. another. That has to be fun to kind of envision what, how you want your your restaurant and bar to express themselves and then to find people that fit and train them and stuff. It's really fun hiring and recruiting for the space because I can tell where people have been and what might work for them. But then when they come in the space, we do a working stage. So people come in during service for a couple of hours, they shadow a role that they're looking at and then interview with the management team. We give them something to eat, but you can see how they react in the space to the different spaces because some people, La Colina speaks a lot more to them and you get that vibe, which is really hard over an interview, but when they're in the space and they have different personalities, the duck and the peach is definitely more finer, a little more elegant, slower, more steps of service. And, and then, then the wells is a bit, you know, it's craft cocktails. But gin focused. We are gin focused. We do other spirits, but gin is the name of the game. So we have a cocktail list on all different styles of gin and cocktails, but we do have other things. Sure. Yeah. It'd be weird not to have to have only gin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember in the early, this round of, of, of fancy cocktails, say 2007, 2008, when there were cocktail bars that didn't have any vodka. Mm-hmm. I think those days are over now. If people right want now. to drink, obviously you're going to make them a drink. <laughs> um, why did you decide to go with gin as opposed to maybe some of the more charismatic spirits like bourbon or tequila? Oh, well, I really fell in love with gin and tonics working with Jose. <laughs> oh, right, Having... gin and tonics are a huge Spanish thing too. Oh, so Spanish and so delicious. And I loved how when uh, we traveled over there and we would, after a beautiful meal, have a gin and tonic and then gin and tonic bars and then traveling, going to a number of different places. London has a lot of them also. And I just I love gin. Gin has so many different botanicals, so many different flavors. And it's one of those spirits where people love it or hate it. So I also love the idea of really showcasing it in different ways to change people's minds. And uh, originally I wanted to do gin for a year, show a spirit through the seasons, 
and then maybe pick another and then pick another spirit. So, but since our, I feel like our opening has been forever uh, because we had to shut down a bit with Omicron and then reopen and we're finally in that regular place. So probably gin for one more year and then I think we'll switch it over. Oh, well, that's fun. Do you have a bunch of different gin and tonics? Um, we have two right now, mm-hmm. but we have all, I mean, we have, if we have 30 different, 30, 40 different gins, so they can all be a gin and tonic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I hate tonic, but I like gin. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just yeah. drink gin on the rocks or. Yeah. Gin with- yeah. It's really good. I found some beautiful, there's a woman made gin out of Piedmont in uh, Italy called Elena. Oh, it's the best sipping gin I've found. It's delicious. That sounds good. I, I have at, at one of the restaurants in my neighborhood where I'm a regular now, one of the bars in my neighborhood where I'm a regular, they have uh, the, the front of the house manager and owner uh, is, is South African. And she found this South African gin oh. that among the botanicals is Kalahari truffle. Who knew? Who knew there was such a thing? I'll have to check that out. Yes, I can. I can introduce you guys. Uh, awesome. Yeah, the, the variety of, of different gins that are available it really makes it, in in many ways, I think a, a more diverse spirit than than a lot of the others, mm-hmm. which is part of the fun. So you got the three restaurants. What's you, you can open more? You, you said you have a goal of five to six, right? Yes, yes, we're opening another one in a couple, in a month or so. We have a space in an apartment building. So we have a Greek concept that we're working on. So it should be fun. Uh, Much smaller place, much smaller place. Also in Capitol Hill? No, but but still in DC. I I don't want to travel. I did a lot of traveling for work. Uh, I'd like to travel just for for fun now. So I want to keep everything in DC. And maybe occasionally for research in case, you know, you need to go to Greece to understand something. Yes. No, research travel is 100%. I'm all for that, but not for, uh, yes, not for, I did a lot of Vegas trips, a lot of LA trips, um, and I want to enjoy going to those places. (laughs) Right. Go for fun. Go for fun, not for work. It's very different when you go to certain places for work. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, well, Hollis Silverman, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about your stuff. I sure. now want to check out all of them when I go to D.C. Yes, please let us know. I will. I'm in New York. It's not that far. Yeah, yeah. It's, we're close to Union Station. It's just a couple blocks. Oh, I could go down for the day. I won't, but I could. <laughs> okay, sounds good. Well, thank you so much for um, doing this. I really appreciate it. I really, really enjoy talking with you. Thank you so much.